Welcome to the Weekly Deep Dive Podcast on the Add-On Education Network, the podcast where we take a look at the weekly Come Follow Me discussion and try to add a little insight and unique perspective. I am your host, Jason Lloyd, here in the studio with my friend and this show's producer, Nate Pfeiffer. What is up? Hey, Nate. Hey, buddy. It's good to be here in the studio recording another episode. It's always good to be here in the studio recording another episode. Especially when we're talking about Isaiah. I, Isaiah is just, I don't know. I, Isaiah makes me happy. Isaiah makes a lot of people confused. <laughs> I, I understand that. And, and I feel like part of the problem with Isaiah and, and confusion is understanding the timeline and the history of events and what was going on with some of the other nations. When you kind of get that context and you start looking at it and reading it, I think it makes a little bit more sense. So that's the hope. Hopefully we can make Isaiah make a little bit more sense for some of you that are confused. Basically me. (laughs) Anyone out there? And I don't know. I haven't seen a lot of email coming through with any kind of questions. So I'm I'm assuming that all of you out there just understand it and you don't have any questions because I'm not not seeing a whole lot for us to, to narrow our focus on. And... Here's the thing. This this week's lesson in Isaiah, it's going to be covering chapters 13, 12, uh, 13. It's going to be going 13 all the way down to 39. This is the largest section of Isaiah that we're going to have to deal with. And and not having anything to narrow that focus, we'll see where we go. We'll see where we get. But I'm just going to repeat this for any of you out there. If you have specific questions about Isaiah, if there's any chapter that you're reading that you're looking at and saying this does not make sense to me, Please help me understand that. Raise the flag. Send us an email. Put a comment on the website. Whatever it takes. Post on on our Facebook page or whatever. Just say, hey, what what does this mean? Can you talk about this? And we'd be happy to give you a minute or two and see if we can't add a little context to it. Sweet. Let's keep uh, moving along. All right. There's there's maybe two things I wanted to talk about from last week, and I I, I know it's. It's hard to take too much time out of from last week, so we're not going to spend a lot of time. Maybe just two things that I wanted to highlight and focus and touch on. And and the first is the mountain of the Lord when they're talking about being established. So this is Isaiah 2, and this is verse 2, and it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow onto it. And I think this is a scripture that gets quoted often because they talk about all oh, the Rocky Mountains and the and the temple that's being built here, but if we're reading this literally as as reference to the the mountains, shouldn't it be like monasteries that are put up on top of Ensign Peak and King's Peak and and these areas that people are going to have to to climb up to to get into? Why why are we talking about the temple being established in the mountains when literally here in Utah they're in the valley, the Utah Valley, the Salt Lake Valley? They're not built on the tops of the mountains. And, and so I, I wanted to just touch on this for a second, if that's okay, and then I'll move quickly. When we're talking about the mountain of the Lord's house, again, think, this, uh, think of the imagery of Mount Olympus and this idea that this is the place where the gods reside. And then think when Christ comes in the New Testament and he says, the fox has dens and all these animals have the place to where they lay the head, but the Son of Man does not. And you think, wait a second, you had a temple. Isn't that the place, the house of God, this, this Mount Olympus where the gods reside? This is your own house? Why do you not? And it's, it's kind of interesting. The temple that existed in Christ's time 
is not the same temple that the Jews built when they left Babylon to come back and restore the temple. Instead, so they built the temple, it was called the Temple of Zerubbabel. But then Herod, when he took the title king of the Jews, and, and there was no king in the land, he actually went to Rome and said, hey, will you, will you grant me the, the, the title of king and I'll, I'll rule over the Jews? And, and the Jews didn't even belong to Rome at that time. And he said, in exchange for making me king, I will give you all of this land. So he went and conquered. He took an army from Rome and conquered Israel, Judah, for Rome in order to be named king of the Jews. That, that's his little background, his little history. And he, and he wanted to make himself very important. So he went to the temple and he said, look, this temple has to be even bigger and better than the temple that you have built. So rather than using the original plans that God gave, and the original uh, talking back to the instructions that God revealed to Moses when the tabernacle was built and later Solomon when he built the house of God and then the Jews when they came back and tried to restore everything. He said the whole temple has to be twice as big as what it was. And he had the walls torn down. He had the whole temple destroyed. And, and a lot of people don't realize this. Sorry, this, this little detour is turning into a big detour. Um, he made a deal with the high priest and, and the high priest was not the same high priest that you had this lineage of high priest going all the way back. Because remember, you had to be a son of um, Aaron in order to be a high priest in this lineage. Instead, Herod decided to grant his friend the, the, the title of high priest. And so they're changing and perverting the priesthood and then they make this deal. As long as sacrifices continue to be offered, then we'll call it as if the temple had always been in work and always been been going through its paces. And 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 so even though there was no temple, they 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 counted it the same temple because the sacrifices were still being out, offered outside in the courtyard while he rebuilt the temple twice as big as it used to be. So the temple at Jerusalem is very different from the original temple that that, that was established that the Romans came through and, and destroyed. And then he also put eagle gates to to the God, uh, to, to Rome and their eagle and some image, imagery there, some symbols that really offended the Jews and the Sadducees because it was supposed to be dedicated to God. And, and it had been desecrated a few times. Uh, one of the Roman emperors actually wanted to put the Roman gods inside of the Jewish temple. I, I believe it was Pompey himself accidentally walked into the Holy of Holies. And then he, he's like, oops, sorry, let's, let's make sure we rededicate that space and, and try to fix it. But you try to talk about Christ saying this temple, this house of God, it's not my house. It really was stolen from him. When you look at Herod and what he did and making this a house to Herod and to his glory and to his kingdom rather than God's kingdom. And this idea that we need to have a house dedicated to God and it's going to be higher than all other houses, higher than the king, higher than everything else. So this is, this is very prophetic of Isaiah speaking of a temple being built because one, it implies that the temple is going to be destroyed before it can be rebuilt. And, and another note, when they're talking about it being higher than any other place and why isn't the temple necessarily on the peaks of the mountains then, it, one thing you need to understand about the temple of, in, in Hebrew culture in the ancient world, 
It didn't matter if you were going north, east, south, or west to get to the temple. You were always going up to the temple because the temple was considered higher than any other building. And if you were on top of a mountain and you had to descend the mountain to go into the temple, you would still say, I am going up to the temple because the temple was higher than the mountain through the way you described it and how you talked about it and where it was. So the temple is established above the mountains and particularly going back to the very beginning, we talked about this uh, ideology of Mount Olympus, the home of the gods. This mount was above the other mountains, the mountain where God resided on the top of the mountains. And here we've got to restore this sacredness. So whether it's the Kirtland temple, the Nauvoo temple, or whatever temple it was, Isaiah is prophesying that his house will be established again. And it's not going to be a house that man is establishing for his own benefit, for his own aggrandizement. This is the house of God. And that's that's about all I have to say on the topic. Uh, There is a little bit of insight in the idea of getting into the heart of a temple was always described as either transversing this incredible difficult maze. Uh, you look at kind of the the, uh, the centaur and the, the island and the Greek mythology and having to get through this this maze to, to, to find your way to, to salvation or having to ascend a very difficult mountain. All right, let's take a look at this week's lesson. Isaiah is actually going to start in chapters 13 and this is going to go for a while uh, talking about the burden of Babylon, uh, the burden of all these different countries, and, and, and take all, all of these different areas of the world and talk about how they're going to be destroyed. That's how it begins. And as you start reading these prophecies and you start reading about what they're talking about, I think it's easy to ask the question, why? Why would a loving God allow so much destruction happen to the world? Why, why are these people being destroyed? Why is their, their green lands being turned into waste places? Why does that much nasty have to happen in the world that was happening? And I think it helps to look at this from the perspective of the king. And I brought with me the, the Amarna tablets. I don't think I'm going to read it for sake of time. If you want to read into them, you can. But in the Amarna tablets, what you have is in the land of Canaan, the people addressing the king of Egypt when, when they were ruling and begging for help. And, and they would send in these requests and they would grovel like, hey, I am the dirt of the dirt seven times over and you're so great and you're the God and you're the sun that rises and, and, and the most powerful God of all the world and I love you so much. By the way, I need about 40 archers to take care of some business because my neighbors are jerks. <laughs> And, and I don't like what they're doing. And, and by the way, my neighbor, he says that he loves you, but he's actually a snitch. And he's telling everything that you say, and he's taking it to your enemies. And I saw him being unfaithful, so please destroy him. And, and you, get a pretty, you, you get overwhelmed pretty quick from all of these letters that are coming into the king saying, kill my neighbor, kill my neighbor, kill my neighbor. So you look at some of these kings, when you look at the Assyrian king, you look at the Babylonian king, and it's easy to point a finger and say, man, these are the, these are the Hitlers, the bad guys of the world that are coming through and destroying everybody and destroying all the peace. But from their perspective, the world was out of balance. People were crying for help because they were powerful, because they had an ability to help. They were requesting that they send their armies in to destroy their neighbors, to destroy each other. And go back to the New Testament when it talks about the the unjust judge 
and the widow that's pleading with him over and over and over again. And finally he says, you know what? I'm going to take care of this just so I don't have to listen to her anymore. And, and God's saying that as if he was the, the unjust judge. Think of the kings being the unjust judge and all of these requests that are coming and they're saying everything is out of balance, the world is out of order, and God has given me this position, this ability, this power to come and impose order on the world around me. And think also the flood was not that long before these people were here. And they know if the world gets way too out of sorts that God is going to wipe everyone out. And it's better to try to whip a few nations under control and take care of the things here and get all of your your ducks in a row than have the whole world wiped out because nobody cares. So it's it gives you a little bit of perspective from, from the king's side of things. And then also the Lord also provides us with some of his perspective when they're talking about why this was happening to Israel. And this is Isaiah talking about the apostasy and, and the decisions that the people have made. Uh, chapter 30. Woe to the rebellious children, saith the Lord, that take counsel, but not of me, and that cover with the covering, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. This is such a powerful verse, Nate. Remember when we talked about cover, kafar, and what that means? The same word for, for atonement and Adam and Eve covering. And here it says they're covering with the covering. They're trying to atone and hide their sins, but not of my spirit that they may add sin to sin. They're trying to hide their spins, not to improve upon what they're doing and change, but if nobody knows what's going on, they can keep sinning. They've gone, um, they, they walk to go down into Egypt and they have not asked at my mouth to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. They're trusting in Egypt rather than trusting in God. They're rejecting their prophets. They're killing their prophets. And, Another verse that I find really powerful is when they talk about how they've changed the ordinances and they've changed the laws and and they've defiled what the Lord has given. And because of that, the world is out of sorts. And it's not all going to be doom and gloom. The Lord's going to talk about how he's going to restore order after after everything happens. And he's going to talk about how even though this has led to death and destruction, there's going to be resurrection and hope. And chapter 26 gives us a a little bit of that hope when we read verse one. And that day shall this song be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong cry. Salvation will God appoint for walls and bulwarks. Now that Hebrew word for salvation is the same as the Greek word for Jesus. God will appoint Jesus for walls and for bulwarks. And now look at this, verse two. Open ye the gates that the righteous nation which keepeth the truth may enter in. So if Jesus is the wall and the bulwarks, then the gates, Christ says, I am the door and no man cometh to the Father except through me. He is the way through. Now take that verse and look further on in, the, in, the, in there. Uh, verse 19, thy dead men shall live together with my dead body shall they arise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in dust, for thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. So here you have Christ talking about even through him, even as he is going to die, he will also rise again. 
And as his nation has died, so will his people die, but death is not the end. And that's where Isaiah becomes very beautiful. There's a lot of these death and destruction are also followed up with very beautiful promises and talking about the coming of a Messiah and the redemption of the world and how Christ intends to fix what's wrong when the people are ready to listen and trust him. It's awesome. Yeah. Talking about, boy, talking about seeing all of this destruction I can't help but read Isaiah and think of Lehi. Because here you have a man, Lehi, as he was going forth, his mind was all worried about the fate of his people, and he was worried that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. And why is he so worried that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed? Is because he lived 120 years after Isaiah the prophet. He saw these prophecies, and he saw the fall of Assyria, the rise of Babylon, this country that 120 years ago, no one thought was possible. And he's like, wait a second. And he's recognizing and he's seeing what's going to happen. And so he prays to the Lord with all of his heart on behalf of his people that they might be spared. And he gets carried away in a vision and he, he, he sees a book and he reads and it talks about the destruction of the people by Babylon, that they're going to perish by the sword and be carried away captive. And yet his, his heart is filled with mercy and he's moved to say, how merciful art thou, God. And, and he, he, he praises him. And you're like, how can he do that? And, and you go back to Isaiah, it's the same thing because it says in the end of that chapter, he saw the coming of the Messiah and the redemption of the world. And, and so something that these prophecies give us is an, an ability to have hope, an ability to have faith in not just the destruction and the darkness that come, but also the light that follows and the salvation that's going to be there. And, and that is bright enough to erase a lot of the gloom that, that, that comes with, with, that, with that prophecy to begin with. Uh, which again is going to remind me of Peter walking on those waters. And when you see the waves and the troubles and the storms, and that's like reading the burden of Babylon. It's like reading the burden of Damascus. It's like reading about the destruction of Israel. And, and in, in modern times, it's, it's like all of the different things that are trying to shake us from our faith and trouble us today. What about these? Or what about this opinion? Or what about this this cause or this thing that we should be following. And, and a lot of this is pulling us in a lot of different directions and confusing us and making us wonder, where do I find peace? And Peter found that peace by finding the Savior, by turning to the Savior who was able to deliver him from the waters and pull him back up to the surface. And that's where I find consolation in these prophecies. When we read about these and we can see historically how they were fulfilled, it gives us a hope and a brightness, and an ability to focus back in on the Savior, even though we have all of this storm around us today. And perhaps the best example of someone who did this isn't even a member of, of the church, being Isaac Newton. And Isaac Newton, a lot of people recognize him for his contributions in the world of math and his contributions in the world of science. What a lot of people don't re realize is that he wrote more about scripture and religion than he did either math or science combined. And, and he wrote, he said, one of his greatest wonderments, he said, as I look at the prophets 
and I look at their prophecies and I look at what the scriptures tell me, I see a pattern of when God calls a prophet and he teaches the people through his prophet and they reject him and they fall into apostasy. And you see this all throughout Isaiah. And yet the Lord will restore them and call a new prophet and bring them back to the light. And he talks about this pattern going through Noah and Abraham and Moses. And then he talks about the Christ coming and the meridian of time and the gospel going from the Jews to the Gentiles and the time of the Gentiles and how they have, just as Isaiah said, have, have changed the ordinances, have broken the laws, have drifted away from what Christ had taught. And he says, and one of the greatest consternations for him was why the Christian world of his time was not looking for a prophet to restore the gospel once again and that this gospel would be the oldest gospel that ever existed and this continuity through these prophecies that by by searching the scriptures and studying these prophecies, what we find is Christ and his ability to pull us back to the surface of the water and not get lost in the in the storm that's surrounding us. Love that. It's beautiful. Yeah. That's fantastic. I uh I think that part of that too is accepting the fact that the storms are going to come, accepting the fact that there will be unrest, accepting the fact that there will be wars and rumors of wars and unrest. And that the, um, again, the greatest blessing that we can have is knowing that we don't need to be afraid during those times. Yeah. Uh, peace in a time of storm. One thing uh, one thing we didn't talk about is Lucifer, Halel ben Shachar. Oh, well, let's talk about him. <laughs> All right, Isaiah 14. You guys should know 1314 is the burden of Babylon. We are talking about the king of Babylon. It says, verse 4, that thou shalt take up this proverb against the king of Babylon. And it says, how art thou fallen, right? So if we go to verse 11, thy pomp is brought down to the grave and the noise of thy vials. The worm is spread under thee and the worms cover thee. How art thou fallen from heaven? O Lucifer, son of the morning, how art thou cut down to the ground that which did which didst weaken the nations? And and it seems like we switch all of a sudden from talking about the king of Babylon to Lucifer. And and what what is this transition? What are we talking about? And it says verse 13, for thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. And that north, as we talked about in a previous episode, is Saphon, the the Mount Olympus, if you will, of, of Canaanite mythology. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high, yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. They that look at thee shall narrowly joke at thee and consider thee saying, is this the man that made the earth to tremble and that did shake kingdoms? that made the world as a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof that opened not the house of his prisoners. All the kings of the nations, even all of them lie in glory, everyone in his own house, but thou art cast out of the grave like an abominable branch. And that Hebrew word for branch is actually an aborted fetus. You're cast out of the grave like an aborted fetus. An aborted fetus, think about this. 
if you're an aborted fetus, it means you didn't get a body. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So a little, a little Lucifer uh, symbolism in there. Yeah. And it's interesting how you're going from the king of Babylon and, and this guy that made all the nations quake and tremble, but now you're talking about someone who wanted to exalt themselves above all the stars of God, someone who, dis- who lives in heaven. Is it not, not Babylon, not the king of Babylon. And, and it says, Lucifer, thou son of the morning. In the Hebrew, it says, Halel ben Shachar. And, and Halel comes from hallelujah. Halel is the verb for praise. Yah is Jehovah, so praise Jehovah. And Isaiah has taken that verb praise and created a proper noun out of it. And, and so Halel, Halel is boastful, proud. So if praise is the verb, then proud is the, the noun, the name. And then he says, son of the morning, Ben Shachar, the, 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 the son of the dawn. And so when the Greek translators looked at it, they said, what, what in the world is Halel? This is the word that Isaiah made up. What is it supposed to mean? Well, if he says son of the morning, the morning, the, 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 the next brightest star, the son of the morning would be Venus. So if they're talking about Venus, then he's talking about Ishtar, the, the light bringer. And so then it became in the Greek, uh, Phosphoros, light bearer. And then it got translated to the Latin to Lucifer. And, and so it's, it's, it's kind of a mistranslation. It's a, it's a name, a Latin name that got put in for a Hebrew word that now all of a sudden in our text today, or in our context today, our discussion, Lucifer now refers to a fallen angel, even though in the beginning his name was Khalil, which meant proud, boastful, arrogant. It's kind of interesting. That is interesting. And Lucifer, it actually shows up one other time in the New Testament when it talks about the more sure word of prophecy, I believe Second Peter three nineteen. I, I could be a little bit off, but it says until the day star arises in your heart. And if you look at the Latin version of that, et lucifero, uh, et lucifer in vuestro corazón, it, it, it's the same thing. Lucifer arises in your heart. It's referencing Christ. It's used as a title of Christ. So where where I find this significant is God is going to speak to us in a way that we understand. In this verse right here, it might have been talking about someone who was proud and arrogant, who exalted himself above everything, and because of that, ended up falling below everything. And today, we understand that as Lucifer, so he's going to use Lucifer to talk to us about the fallen angel and and use words and symbols that we understand. We've talked so much about like water having dual meanings and the, the, the water giving life, but also the salt water in the ocean destroying and killing. You talk about somebody who wanted to ascend above all things who ended up descending below all things. Now look at what Christ came to do, who descended below all things is just done the exact opposite, but really it's the same thing. Who's now going to ascend above all things. Think of this, in context of us too, what did what did Satan want for us in his plan, right? Is to be subjected to him really, right? He wanted all of the glory. He wanted to he wanted to be, like you just pointed out, the ruler over all of the stars in the heaven. He wanted the glory. He wanted all of those things. He wanted us to eternally be subjects to him or um 
not necessarily slaves to him, but you know what I mean, like below him. Yes. He wanted us to be below him. And what did Christ want to do? He, 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 his whole purpose, we, and we know what is, what is God's purpose for us? What is his work and his glory, right? And that is Christ. Exalt us. That's exactly right. Christ descended below all things to exalt all of us, right? To exalt all of us and, and make us all like him or equal to him, right? And it's just like, if you just look at the two, the contrast between those two plans of, of, Satan and um, Heavenly Father, and, and how Christ says it in the New Testament, it, it's the the mildest, the meekest, the one that's the servant that ends up being the greatest of all, that ends up being above all, and and it feels like it's at this point almost a broken record in the Old Testament. It just keeps coming up. We can't get away from that that teaching that if you want to be great, if you want to be like God. You've got to do the hard work. You've got to be humble. You've got to to lose yourself, to give yourself up, to 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 find yourself by losing yourself. And and we see it in the New Testament, but certainly through all of these stories, we keep seeing that theme come out. Awesome. Let's keep going. All right. Something else that's interesting about what Isaiah is doing is it's not just a story about Jerusalem. I mean, I'm sure you guys noticed this as you're starting reading this. Like, why, why is he talking about Babylon getting destroyed? Why is he talking about um, Moab getting destroyed, Damascus and Tyre and Sidon, all these different places? And, and it's, it's interesting that Isaiah does pull all of this in. And as you start to look at the history of some of these places, like Tyre gets destroyed, but then it's, it's restored. And it, it, not only is it restored, but it becomes a great merchant city again. And all of the gold, guess what? It's going to go into building the temple at Jerusalem after Cyrus destroys the Babylonians and they're allowed to go back and build their their temple. And not only is Babylon going to be destroyed, as we read in 13 and 14 and a couple of these other chapters about Isaiah, but when Babylon gets destroyed, it's also going to be, for the most part, a lot of times it's going to be rebuilt. And not only is it going to get rebuilt, but Babylon becomes the, the most powerful, beautiful, greatest city and ends up running the whole world for a while before it's eventually destroyed a second time. But we get, we're getting all of these nations that are pulled into this and you start to realize that all of these nations have very similar stories with each other. And, and not only that, but how many times do you see referenced in Isaiah Sodom and Gomorrah? And he calls Israel Sodom and Gomorrah. And he calls Babylon Sodom and Gomorrah. And you realize Sodom and Gomorrah were the same as Israel. Babylon was the same as Israel. In fact, Babylon is what destroyed Israel, just like Israel was what destroys the Canaanites when they come into the land. And you all of a sudden start to realize all of these countries are God's countries. All of these people are God's people. And all of them, regardless of their background, regardless of their beliefs, regardless of what they're doing, are all headed on the same course. And when they forget God and when they forget to do what they're supposed to be doing and when they're starting oppressing people and, and these people start reaching out and crying for help and now somebody comes in to save them and deliver them and they get destroyed and wiped out and they, they die, it's not the end. Now think of these stories of these nations, these peoples as the story of us on an individual level. Regardless of our heritage, our nationality, our ethnicity, our ethnicity regardless of our religious beliefs, 
And regardless of, of how good we think we are or what choices we're trying to make, we're still headed towards destruction. We're still going to die. It's, it's bleak. And you think about this doom that's looming over us and, and this destruction that we're going to meet with. And, and as nasty as that seems, Isaiah has a way of breathing hope into the situation. Now, I want to take just a minute to talk about Isaiah's prophecy about Babylon. And, and it might not seem like that big a deal. You look at it historically, hindsight being 2020, and you're like, yeah, Persia came and destroyed Babylon, blah, 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 blah. But what you don't understand is Isaiah is writing this prophecy 120 years before this happens. And at the time of writing, Babylon had been under Assyrian rule for 200 years. They were not a powerful country. And, and they're going to be under Assyrian rule for the next hundred years. And when they says that Babylon's going to be destroyed by the Medes and, and the, the Chaldeans, these guys are even less significant than Babylon. And you're talking about the desert where nobody's there and not even established. And Isaiah is saying, yeah, these, these guys are going to come through and wipe out Babylon. But when they do, Babylon is going to be powerful. He's going to make all of the kingdoms of the world shake and tremble. And you're like, well, that's what Assyria is doing. Do you, think, do you think maybe he was confused? He's old. Maybe we can give Isaiah a pass because he's just a little bit confused. He's really talking about Assyria. Or maybe he's not talking about this. It's easy for people to have discredited what Isaiah said at the time because of how far-fetched it was. To, to try to put that in context of today's terms. You've got, you've got Russia... Who's, who's significantly larger than Ukraine, and you have a war that's going on there right now, and, and there's a lot of disruptions because Ukraine's giving Russia a hard time, Russia's giving Ukraine a hard time. And, and that's like saying, if Isaiah were to prophesy today that Russia's gonna come and destroy the United States, we could look at that and say, maybe that's a possibility. But who would believe him if Isaiah stood up and said Ukraine was going to destroy the United States and the rest of the whole world as well? Yeah, that'd be weird. Right? That, that would be very unbelievable. Because Babylon is the smaller brother to the side that is constantly revolting and trying to get their own power and, and their own freedom and their own dominance. And, and Assyria is not letting them. You're always going to be part of us. You're always going to be part of our nation. And now it's the little brother that's going to rule the entire world. So Okay. So you're saying basically at the time... This prophecy is being made. This isn't like a layup prediction, right? There's no, it's, this isn't an easy prediction is what you're saying. Yes. And, 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 and what, and I guess what's the point of that? Like, what's the significance in that then? And, to put, and you're putting it mildly. If I, if I can just even put a slightly finer point on this, Isaiah's prophesying about this being such a great city. Babylon had 350-foot-tall walls that were wide enough to race four chariots on, on the top of it. Eventually. Eventually. Certainly not at his time. Okay. Certainly not at any point of his lifetime were they like this. And they were so large. They were the first city in the world to achieve a population of 200,000. They were larger than modern-day Chicago in the ancient world. This didn't happen. 
So it, it, it was insane to believe that this was going to happen. And then it becomes even more insane to believe that something that powerful would be wiped out that quickly. And not only wiped out that quickly, but never regain its dominance. Tyre regained its dominance. Samaria regained some, some standing of where it was. Jerusalem regained it. Why wouldn't Babylon, the greatest, most powerful city in the world, Alexander the Great tried to restore it. Saddam Hussein tried to restore it. Saddam Hussein, baby. And, and both of them... How did Saddam Hussein just make it into our podcast this week? That's fantastic, actually. <laughs> and, and both men died trying to make this city great because it was meant to be deserted, abandoned, a, a kind of this, this stain. And, and who would have guessed that? Isaiah did. And so you ask the question, what, what, what's the value of this? What's the, yes. what's the purpose of this? Like, what do we get from this? Let me read Isaiah chapter 35 and, and see if this resonates. Nate, help, help me out with this. Verse 1, The wilderness and the solitary place shall be glad for them, and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy in singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given unto it, the excellency of Carmel and Sharon, and they shall see the glory of the Lord and the excellency of our God. Strengthen ye the feeble, excuse me, strengthen ye the weak hands and confirm the feeble knees. Say to them that are fearful of a fearful heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come up with vengeance. Even God with the recompense, he will come and save you. The eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap as a heart and the tongue of the dumb sing. And in the wilderness shall waters break out and the streams in the desert. The point is, Isaiah is prophesying, prophesying of a lot of impossible things. The resurrection, the Messiah, a restoration, these beautiful promises. And for us to believe and have faith and hope in all of these beautiful things that are still way in the future for us. For me to try to believe in a life after death when I see family members die and, and think that maybe there's hope for me that, that I can live and I can see these people again. Or, or for me to try to have hope that somehow I can receive a forgiveness of my sins and a peace back in my life and a restoration after going through some of this trouble. It helps to turn back and look at this prophecy and see all of these other things were fulfilled as impossible or as hard as they were for, for anyone to believe at that time. There's a certain level of trust, I feel like, too, that it and comfort in that, right? What you just said, I think, is beautiful and it's very profound. And, and that's kind of what I was taking out of it as well, is that when you can see something so improbable being fulfilled it gives you confidence to rely on the other prophecies as well to, to at least believe that you can f learn from those things. Or in this case, when you, like you said, how Isaiah is really good at, at, there's so many layers to what he's prophesying about is that it's like Lehi when he was able to look at this and say, oh, these things are being fulfilled. He was prepared for, the Lord saying, okay, now is the time that this is going to be fulfilled and Lehi was ready to go. Okay, cool. Thank you for telling me and giving me a chance to get out of this mess, right? Like you said, 
when we can see when we see these impossible prophecies being fulfilled and other various miracles in our lives it it gives us i feel like a, a deep profound trust and confidence that that when we are taught that yes there is life after this which that's a scary thing right that the the idea that there's nothing after this or or prepare for you know crazy things going on in the world and then those things happen and, and then it's like yep we'll, we told you that this was going to happen and then the next time they're like hey well prepare yourself again you go well they were right last time that you know that they that they prophesied of these things maybe we should listen i don't know does that make sense yeah it does and and i think of of moroni when he says you receive no witness until after the trial of your faith and you think, well, how am I supposed to believe first in something that's super impossible? And the thing is, you don't, you don't just start with that. God gave us, we love God because he loved us first. He, he gave us these prophecies. He gave us these examples. He gave us these opportunities to build up our faith and believe so that we could exercise our faith. Because we're not going to have a trial of faith if we don't have anything to build that faith on first. And when we start looking and seeing and learning, and, and that's, maybe that's another secondary thing that we can talk about of the power of these prophecies. We start reading this and seeing the fulfillment of it is the ability that these prophecies have to, to hone our vision in on Christ and focus us on him so that we can believe in the hard things. And, and I say that because I, I, I look at how religion is ridiculed throughout the world and, and how sometimes you look at it and oversimplify and how could, how could really just one man dying save the entire world or bring people back from the dead? Or is it not ludicrous? Why would God kill his perfect son for all of these other children that are wicked? And, and, and I think a lot of these oversimplifications and, and things that start to get us to doubt or to wonder or to fear and, and you look at it and say, yeah, maybe, maybe that is stupid. Maybe I am foolish for reading this or believing this. Uh, you look at God calling a prophet at a young age and, and restoring the gospel in a time of prophets where, where we haven't had a prophet for a long time. And maybe this is a little absurd. Maybe some boy didn't find some gold plate somewhere. Maybe a boy didn't talk to God. Maybe we can't have that privilege anymore. Maybe that does seem a little bit odd, a little bit absurd. And, and all of these things start to, to eat at us, to wear at us, to, to cause us to doubt or to wonder and, and, and start to look at it a little bit more critically. And, and there's no shortage of things that will criticize and, and feed on that fear. But these prophecies have a way of refocusing our attention back on the Savior. And it, it's a quote that's come up in this podcast several times. Thomas S. Monson said it all the time that the wisdom of God oftentimes appears as foolishness to man. And God says that in Isaiah. Isaiah's not the easiest thing for those simpletons like me. I'm just going to <laughs> tell you that right now, Jason. It's, it's beautiful. It is beautiful. And by the way, like, I do appreciate you kind of helping walk me through some of this stuff that is, it would just go straight over my head. And for the most part, it does just continue to go straight over my head. But, um, but yeah, I mean, Isaiah, it's heavy. Like that's, it's, it's like heavy reading, man. There's, there's a lot there. 
Well, and, and it helps understanding I, there's different layers, right? And, and when you understand the literal and what's happening and you can get that foundation, then, then it's a little easier to step back and then you, you feel like you get it and maybe look for secondary or what else could this symbolize sure. or what else could this mean? But for any sure. of you out there that, that just look at it and struggle with what is this actually talking about? Maybe I need some more historical context to this. Reach out to us. We've, we've, we've got some historical context. We can fill you in and, and help you with specific verses. When he says we, by that he means him, Jason, can help you with that <laughs> stuff. I don't know anything about any of this stuff. So I am, I am in the process of learning as long or along with everybody else here. Um, good stuff today. Some, some intense stuff, some, uh, some heavy lifting, but some really, I don't know, man, some beautiful, profound lessons to be learned from, from these chapters of Isaiah, man. Uh, what are we talking about next week? Next, next week we are still in Isaiah. In Isaiah, wow. <laughs> when do we get to Daniel? Soon enough. We, we, we can't rush out of Isaiah. It's a, oh, man, Isaiah's heavy, dude. We, we've got, and it's nice. So this one was a really thick section of Isaiah. Next week, I believe we're going like, what, 40 through 47. So it's a little bit smaller, maybe okay. 49. And, right. and then it's the week after that when we start getting to 50, 51, 52, 53, yeah. that, that we start getting... A, a lot of really beautiful atonement passages I'm really looking forward Can't to. Wait for that. So we got about three Isaiah lessons left. Amazing. Um, all right. Well, good stuff tonight, and uh, until next week. See ya. Yeah.